Last time, we traced the, the path modern Japan took from the fall of the Tokugawa in the 1850s and the 1860s until the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895. You'll recall that Japan's victory in the Sino-Japanese War was a mixed bag. On the one hand, Japan cemented its place as the preeminent regional power in East Asia and secured a major indemnity from, and also some primo, ter ter primo territory from, China. On the other, the Liaodong Peninsula was ripped from Japan's hands by Russia, with the assistance of its French and German allies, and the complicity of Japan's American and British ostensible allies, who stood silent and allowed this humiliation. Worse, Russia then secured a lease on Liaodong, confirming Japanese fears that the Russians were becoming their major rival in the region. That Russian-Japanese rivalry exploded just a decade after Japan's victory over China. If defeating an ailing but still formidable China propelled Japan to international attention and regional influence, Japan's completely unexpected win over Russia was one of the most shocking upsets of the international order in centuries, not to mention a tremendously important chapter in Japan's rise and subsequent fall. It did not, however, happen in a vacuum. So let's begin by setting the scene. Victory in Korea over China was part of the reason that Japan was able to participate in the alliance of Western nations that put down the Boxer Rebellion, discussed in a previous lecture on China. Remember, the Boxers, so-called, were unarmed peasants who rose up against foreign maltreatment of China and the influx of so-called barbarians into the country. Japan sent a force of 10,000 troops this was the largest component of the international force that put down the Boxer Rebellion. Japanese troops, conscious of international opinion if nothing else, exercised careful restraint during the Boxer Rebellion and earned respect for their disciplined behavior. Japan relished this new role as policemen of Asia and great power. The Japanese joined the subsequent peace conference as an equal to the other powers, and after the rebellion stationed a peacekeeping force in the vicinity of Beijing. Following up on the 1894 Anglo-Japanese Treaty of Commerce and Navigation, Japan's victory, and the Western powers' choice to begin rolling back the unequal treaties, the Japanese concluded a more comprehensive alliance with Britain, which was at the time still the world's greatest power. The Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902 was the first between the most powerful empire in world history at the time and an Asian nation. Westernization and industrialization in Japan, after the restoration of the Meiji Emperor in 1868, had made Japan the major native power in the Far East, and in Britain the Japanese were respected as a decent, orderly, efficient, reliable nation, in marked contrast to the Chinese. More than that, as Michael Seth has pointed out, Great Britain's emergence from the so-called policy of splendid isolation to sign this pact was a measure to counter Russian expansion. The Anglo-Japanese alliance recognized Japan's special interests in Korea and promised, importantly, mutual military aid. So, with a colony in Taiwan, troops in Beijing, and an alliance with the British, Japan had secured a place as one of Japan's, excuse me, as one of Asia's imperial powers. Perhaps most importantly, it guaranteed, as Japan deeply desired, that if either country were to go to war, the other would remain neutral, unless that war involved two or more opponents. In that case, the other party would provide military aid 
So what this did was prevented Germany and France from supporting Russia in war, as they had in the Triple Intervention of 1895, because then they'd have to go to war with the British as well. Japanese domination of Korea, tacitly accepted, accepted by the British, uh, meant that Japan also had less to fear from Russia without a real threat from European allies, or anyone else for that matter. Moreover, Japan had efficiently and profitably invested its spoils of war from a decade earlier. By the eve of war with Russia, Japan had marched ahead in industrialization, stabilized the gold-linked yen, and replenished its reserves a bit while building world-class military power, especially in its navy and the shipyards to support it. So this is the background against which the Russo-Japanese War took place in 1904 to 1905. Despite the name, this was Japan's second major military struggle over Korea in a decade. Instead of waiting for an excuse, as they had with China, though, Toyota, uh, Tokyo preemptively declared war in Russia to secure by force the economic and strategic interests in Manchuria and Korea that Japan desired. Included in this was the creation of a Korean protectorate, which lasted from 1904 to 1910. The bulk of the fighting took place outside of Korea, either at sea or in Manchuria, i.e. the northern areas of China. Most of the battles were naval battles. Only two were close to Korea, the Battle of Chemupo, the old name for Incheon, and the Battle of the Yalu River. Once the Russians were driven out of Port Arthur, which was the major port on the Liaodong Peninsula, and that's why the peninsula was so important, they retreated to Mukden, where they were surrounded and defeated at great cost. More than 26,000 Russians killed, 25,000 wounded, and 40,000 captured. The final battle was another naval battle, this time in the Straits of Tsushima, between Korea and Japan, where the Russian navy was completely destroyed, including eight battleships. Uh, it is worth saying that uh, this, that, that's a quote from, uh, from a, a scholar, but I just want to sort of put a caveat here. The idea that the Russian Navy was completely destroyed is a little bit misleading. The Russian Pacific Navy was completely destroyed. Uh, the fact that there was also a Baltic Navy is important, and so let's keep that in mind as, as we move forward. In any case, the details of these battles uh, of Chevalpo and Port Arthur and whatever, uh, they're not really that important for our purposes. But two things are. First, the Casas Belli, in other words, the justification for the war. Japan initially appears to have had little interest in the messy business of formally annexing Korea. However, for strategic reasons, the peninsula could not be allowed to fall into Russian hands. One Japanese diplomat explained to the New York Times that, quote, the independence of Korea is a guarantee of the security of Japan. My country cannot, without exposing itself to suicide, permit a third power to occupy Korea. It is, for us, a question of life or death. This same envoy also attempted to convince American readers that the February 1904 protocol signed between the two countries did not establish a Korean protector, which it manifestly did. To be fair, Article 3 did ostensibly guarantee Korean independence, a promise immediately undermined by an quote-unquote agreement the, next year, the same year that ceded control over Korean finance and diplomacy. These Credibility issues aside, a genuine fear of Russian imperialist expansion was a major motivator for Tokyo. The prospect of controlling the land and resources of Manchuria, uh, and Korea was already under indirect control, uh, was another significant factor. Second, 
the results and fallout reshaped the world. Now, this may sound like hyperbole. It's not. The Russo-Japanese War was a giant proxy conflict so momentous in its consequences and massive in scale that some very serious scholars, especially military scholars, refer to it as World War Zero. Though the name Russo-Japanese suggests otherwise, most of the combat occurred either in China and Korea or in adjacent waters, while the war itself was largely financed in third-party money markets. Uh, that's really important, we'll come back to that. Uh, both powers were primarily equipped with arms purchased from French, British, Americans, etc. Both employed armies of roughly 1.2 to 1.3 million soldiers and gleefully sacrificed them to the new realities of drawn-out, industrialized, last-man-standing slaughter, which came to define large-scale war in the 20th century. The global entanglements of complex political alliances and financial networks underpinned this war in a manner that was then echoed by World War I. Uh, with Japan's war effort financed in the stock markets of London and New York, and backed by the governments of those two countries. On the other hand, Russia was supported by its German and French allies, partly as a result of political cleavages in Europe, but also more simply because of the basically incestuous nature of continental royalty. Though the war ended with what is generally remembered as a Japanese victory, in essence, Japan and Russia fought to a stalemate. This was reflected in the post-war settlement. Japan won those land battles in Korea. It destroyed the Russian Pacific Fleet, especially as mentioned uh, at the Battle of Tsushima Strait uh, in 1905, the first major battle of steel battleships. Um, and of course, it also Japan also took Port Arthur, the deep water year-round port at the tip of the Gaodong Peninsula which Russia had leased from China. This came after a bloody half-year siege that cost the Japanese upward of 10,000 soldiers just by itself. On the surface, Japan seems to have come out on top. But as the taking of Port Arthur hints, Japanese human and material losses had been high, and both armaments and funds were running out. The Russians knew this. They also had potential reinforcements that could be shipped across the vast country if they decided to continue fighting. So this is why I mentioned the Baltic fleet. So it wasn't just that you could ship troops across uh, the landmass of Asia, uh, across all of Russia, but also the Baltic fleet could potentially have made the complex circumnavigation to get to the Pacific if necessary. In any case, uh, despite appearances then, the war did not end with a clear-cut Japanese victory. So when the Japanese oligarchs secretly asked American President Theodore Roosevelt to mediate the uh, peace settlement, the Russian bargaining position was not as weak as it might have seemed or might have been. In September 1905, a peace treaty was concluded in New Hampshire at Portsmouth. Roosevelt later won the Nobel Peace Prize for this. He was the first American to do so. Reflecting the stalemate, the treaty was not nearly as generous to Japan as the one signed at Shimonoseki a, date or, a, a decade earlier to conclude the war with China. On the one hand, the Japanese did gain control of Russian railway lines in southern Manchuria. They also took over Russian leaseholds in two Manchurian ports, obtained recognition of their exclusive rights in Korea, and were able to establish a Japanese military presence in Manchuria in the form of the Guangdong or Kwantung Army, which was there to guard those Japanese interests. On the other hand, other than southern Sakhalin, Japan gained no territory outright. 
More importantly, it received no indemnity. Public opinion at home was severely disappointed by the lack of obvious spoils. It was the indemnity, or lack thereof, that was most important in the long run. Without this financial compensation, despite the political value of victory, the war was nothing but a drain on Japanese human and economic resources. Japan had, as I mentioned, financed its war on the markets of London and New York, more the latter than the former. Over the 18-month course of the conflict, Japan somewhat miraculously managed to raise an astonishing uh, $408 million in loans from the markets, and was able to float four successive bond issues to make up the rest of the nearly $1 billion that the war cost. This was, as Edward S. Miller has remarked, nothing short of an international financial coup for what had previously been at best a second-class military and financial power, i.e. Japan. Not only did this war mark Japan's entrance into the ranks of the great powers militarily and financially, but it was also the pivotal moment in which New York began to catch up to London and Paris as an international financier. With no indemnity from the Tsar, however, the costs of Japan's war bonds, in other words, the large interest payments to foreign investors who had backed the war, were passed on to the taxpayers in subsequent years. This destabilized society and ushered in what is sometimes called the era of popular protest from 1905 to 1919. Russia was financially broken by the war. It was simply unable to pay the Japanese demand for much as a billion dollars in restitution. Sensitive to this problem, as well as to Russian pride, and concerned by the sudden and dramatic rise of Japan as a great new force in East Asia, as he put it, Roosevelt certainly did not work hard to support the Japanese position. In fact, he may have worked to undermine it by at least implying that American financing might not be forthcoming for any future uh, further prosecution of the war if Japan didn't accept the deal that was on the table. Now, this was rumored from the time of the settlement, and it has never been definitively proven, but speculation remains. In any case, the Russo-Japanese War not only led to the First Russian Revolution of 1905, but also to significant social unrest in Japan as well. The results for Japan were not uniformly negative, of course. In addition to the enormous prestige that victory over the Tsar entailed, Japan gained significant economic concessions in Manchuria, and also recognition by Russia of its political hegemony in Korea. When we recall that the Sino-Japanese War a decade earlier had extracted a similar recognition from China, and that in the interim Japan had already been administering Korean foreign relations and working closely to manipulate the Korean government, it's clear that by this point Japan had secured a de facto hold on the peninsula. This was a strategic and economic victory. It insulated Japan against the dagger ostensibly pointing at its heart, and engaged in the kind of direct economic, excuse me, indirect economic colonialism that many of the Western powers had used and were continuing to use to the benefit of their metropoles. In the wake of the Russo-Japanese War, however, the Korean situation changed. With the assassination that same year, i.e. 1905, of the Japanese uh, Governor General, Ito Hirobumi, the Japanese forced the Korean king to resign and disbanded the nation's army. This was the final step before formal annexation, which followed along dutifully in 1910. With Korea added to its portfolio of land holdings, Japan was well on its way to becoming the most powerful uh, regional imperial nation. 
perhaps ironically, at least in the hindsight of history, defeat of Russia, which was the first by a non-Western country over a Western power since Napoleon had invaded Egypt a century earlier, Japan became, for a time, a beacon of hope for many non-Western, non-white peoples around the world, struggling under the yoke or under the threat of Western imperialism. The converse of this was to be seen in the idea of the Yellow Peril. In any case, as we now know, Japan quickly and decisively squandered any goodwill that it earned in the Russo-Japanese War. Japanese military men, intellectuals, and policymakers let this success go to their heads, and it supported and enforced notions of a Japanese yellow man's burden. As the most advanced Japanese, as, as the most advanced Asian nation, it was Japan's duty, they believed, to lead their brethren out of the bondage of both primitiveness and Western empire. As Jamal Aydin summed it up, Asian decolonization was unthinkable in the absence of Japan's unique mission to lead the free Asia. Prasenjit Duara made roughly the same point when he wrote, quote, Japanese Pan-Asianism at the turn of the century had several different strains, including imperialistic ones, but also egalitarian and compassionate feelings toward fellow Asians who had been exploited and devastated by more aggressive cultures. At the same time, Pan-Asianism cultivated a deep claim of Japanese leadership in Asia and a self-imputed responsibility to raise Asians from their fallen state. The end result was that Japanese attitudes and policies toward Asia increasingly resembled the very thing that Japan claimed to, to oppose, rapacious Western imperialism. Nowhere is this clearer than the 21 demands that Japan presented to the new Chinese Republic in 1915. As Paul Dunscombe has argued, the idea that Japan required an overseas empire gained wide-ranging accept acceptance astonishingly early. A significant majority of Japanese from all walks of life fervently sought national equality with the imperialist powers of the West. Though, as Dunscombe is careful to add, nobody wanted to bear the financial or military burden of building that empire, in Asia, these supporters of empire wanted to make Japan more than the equal of the other powers, and they pushed the Western powers to recognize Japanese special interests in Asia. The real question was whether unilateralism or multilateralism would better serve those ends. Japan had been promoting its Asian interests carefully, trying very hard not to provoke the great powers. Now that the Europeans were busy killing each other in the trenches of World War I, a power vacuum opened up in Asia. As the diplomatic historian Ian Nish wrote, quote, prior to 1914, Japan's problem had been to promote her interests without exciting opposition from competing powers. Now that war had come, the European powers had lost their power, if not their interest, in China. In January 1915, the Japanese presented five sets of 21 total demands to Yuan Shikai. These demands sought to secure and expand Japanese economic interests in the north of China, in other words, Manchuria especially. The first two groups focused on recognition of a sphere of influence, in other words, special Japanese legal and economic interests and privileges in the area, including the continuity of extraterritoriality and the expansion of rail rights. Group three demanded Japanese joint ownership of a mining and metallurgical complex in central China, which was already heavily in debt to the Japanese. Group 4 forbade China from making further concessions of land or leases of coastal harbors to 
uh, any foreign country except Japan. For group five, uh, I think it's worth borrowing from Nish's description. This last group of demands was hidden from Japan's allies until it was presented to China. But, and the reason for this is that it was understood to be unpalatable to the Western powers. It was a list of desiderata rather than demands. And this wish list included, as Nish put it, quote, the desire that China should employ Japanese political, financial, and military advisors, while in areas where disputes had arisen between Japanese and Chinese nationals, policing should be arranged jointly by the two countries. In other words, the demands seemed to portend a serious interference in Chinese domestic affairs. While the world community was deeply disturbed by this apparent ultimatum, it should be said that the Japanese demanded no territory, indemnity, etc. Nevertheless, when Japan's most important Western allies, the U.S. and Britain, objected, the most radical demands, in other words, Group 5, were withdrawn. On the other hand, China accepted the other demands, the other four groups. In other words, they recognized Japan's special position in southern Manchuria in particular. So this was, I believe it's fair to say, a cynical power grab. But even after this, uh, which showed Japan to be little or no better than any other power-hungry empire, the decade of 1905, the end of the Russo-Japanese War, to 1915, the 21 demands, remained a sort of golden age that the Japanese could return to in order to comfort and themselves and justify their actions, no matter how reprehensible they became. Even when formerly sympathetic or openly positive Asian leaders such as Gandhi or Nehru became critical of Japanese expansionism, they could be dismissed by returning to the golden age of subaltern expectations for Japan, that one decade when there was an interest in Japanese leadership in different parts of Asia. As Jamal Aydin wrote, the small group of Japan's Asian collaborators, together with the Asian and African-American intellectuals who expressed support for Japan's Asianist projects, were very important in allowing Japanese intellectuals to convince themselves that their ideas of the new order in East Asia were different from Western imperialism. It was an echo chamber of confirmation bias, something those of us living in the era of social media and fake news understand all too well, or ignore at our peril. Just a few years later, a less well-known but equally important attempt to establish preeminence in the eastern half of Asia, especially vis-a-vis -vis its old rivals for hegemony, focused on Japan's other old nemesis, Russia. The Siberian intervention, which lasted from 1918 to 1922, was part of a larger effort by Allied forces to intervene in the Bolshevik Revolution. In essence, Political and economic elites in the capitalist Western states were panicked by the communist revolution, and they worried that it might spread. So they backed a counter-revolutionary, in other words, white Russian, quote-unquote, force against the Bolsheviks. In 1918, the American president, Woodrow Wilson, requested that Japan contribute 7,000 troops to the international contingent of 25,000. Japan instead sent 12,000, and then refused to withdraw even after the Allies withdrew from Siberia in 1920, when the counter-revolutionary leader they had supported was captured and executed. The Japanese military hung on until 1922, attempting to prop up local puppets or establish Japanese-friendly regimes in mainland North Asia, Northeast Asia. For those of you who know anything about what's about to happen, this is what is known as ominous foreshadowing. 
I'd like to talk about the interwar period, which is, of course, defined as the period between World War I and World War II. Um, even so, it's worth uh, saying that while on the one hand, we have a, a nice clear start at 1918, uh, whether you end the interwar period in 1931 or 1937, for example, uh, is somewhat of a matter of opinion. But we're going to focus on that period, roughly the 20s and 30s, at least that sort of 15-ish year period, uh, 15 to 20 year period uh, from 1918 to up to uh, as long as 1937 in this section. Uh, and I want to talk about economy and society. It's one of the most difficult times to understand in Japanese history. There are a number of reasons for this, of which I think the two big ones are, uh, first, that we see things specifically from the perspective of what came after. Um, in other words, Japan's hubris-fueled, futile, ultimately self-destructive two-front war in mainland China and the Pacific. Also, we see, also this is more generally, we see things from the perspective of the so-called Dark Valley of History, which connects the two wars, in other words, the 1930s. Um, I believe I have previously warned against too easily viewing the past, especially major successes and failures, through the lens of the present. This would be a good time to recall that warning. Second, the social, economic, and political situations of the interwar period were, uh, in the words of Elise Tipton, complex, contradictory, and multivalent. Many different forces were at work in Japan, pushing and pulling the country and society in contradictory directions. In order to see this period in its longer context, however, we need to begin with the political crisis of 1912 to 1913. Now, I'm not going to burden you with the details of Japanese dysfunctional uh, parliamentary system, especially in the early 20th century. Uh, for now, it's enough to note that parliamentary government in pre-war Japan was constrained by both formal and informal institutions. So on the one hand, it faced ideological challenge and organized attacks from emperor-centered radicals on the right, uh, the so-called right, and a wide range of activists on the left. And it all should also be said that left and right are uh, imprecise and perhaps not entirely useful uh, terms in understanding the political alignment in uh, pre-war and essentially imperial Japan. Uh, I'm using them here uh, as shorthands. The oligarchs in particular considered <clears throat> democracy uh, not to be an end, but rather a means. Uh, and for them, it was a means to ensure the position of emperor and empire of national power and social order. Uh, this meant for odd bedfellows. Uh, in other words, some, some strange alliances. And also uh, log rolling, which is a uh, term which uh, essentially means influence trading. And of course, pork barrel politics. In any case, the so-called Taisho political crisis of 1912 to 1913 was the first time that popular protest brought down a cabinet. This happened in February 1913. As part of the longer era of popular protest, which began in 1905, as we've talked about, um, and included, I should say, nine major riots in Tokyo alone, and then concluded with the rice riots of 1918, this uh, fall of the parliament in 1913 was a critical moment in causing both the surviving oligarchs and party politicians to be terrified by the specter of aroused, politically focused masses. 
In other words, the prospect of popular unrest mixing with new ideologies of political radicalism eventually led the surviving Meiji oligarchs and party politicians to join hands in the name of securing social order, i.e. their own positions of privilege. As we saw in Meiji, the government both wanted and feared an active and engaged populace. And of course, this is not a specifically Japanese problem. For us, two direct and immediate outcomes of this Taisho crisis bear note. First, it led to a two-party political rivalry that persisted through the 1930s. Second, restrictions that had given the military a de facto veto over cabinet formation were relaxed. As Marius Jansen explains, since the emperor was, in theory, commander of all armed services, the ministers of the army and navy reported directly to him but they in turn were selected from the generals and admirals on the active list by their respective general staffs. In the new rules instituted after 1913, not only active duty officers, but also retired military men could serve as army and Navy ministers in the cabinet. When the rule was changed back in 1936, these rules allowed the military to take control of the government. The protesters who troubled the minds of Japan's governing elites included many from the growing, growing class of wage laborers produced by rapid industrialization. Skilled male workers, female textile, textile workers, etc., clustered in the cities, especially Tokyo and Osaka. Part of their frustration was the same taxation without representation uh, on which the American Revolution is supposedly founded. This was galling at all times, but no more so than when the cost of the state's failures were passed on to the unrepresented proletariat, as they were when taxes were raised after the Russo-Japanese War, for instance. The government attempted to shape society to create and maintain social order. It restructured the villages, the shrines, the educational system, etc., and supported so-called patriotic societies, which were aimed at securing the loyalty and participation of various groups in civil society. Among these were the Imperial Military Reserve Association, which was formed in 1910 as a kind of national guard to raise military preparedness and reinforce social order. By 1918, the organization had over 2 million members in nearly every village of Japan. As one historian of grassroots support for militarism summed it up, quote, by the 1930s, the organization and its members had become the backbone of rural Japan. More recently, uh, Sayaka Chitani has pointed to the central significance of youth groups in the Japanese empire. These groups, which worked to discipline young men and create ideal Japanese subjects, served both as a kind of pipeline to the military and also as a tool for rural youth in particular to pursue their own agendas of social mobility. Other groups targeted women, recognizing that they too were critical to the success of the nation, as long as they knew their place, of course. We are going to return to the issue of gender a bit later. The end of the era of popular protest was the national paroxysm of 1918, collectively known as the Rice Riots. Inflation during World War I had been exacerbated by merchants speculating on rice harvests. So prices spiraled out of control. In late July of that year, protests brought, uh, broke out in a small fishing village in Toyama. From there, anger spread around Japan. There are at least 623 separate disturbances recorded, 
and things escalated from peaceful petitioning of officials to riots, strikes, looting, incendiarism, and armed clashes. Perhaps as many as 2 million people participated in incidents in 38 cities, 153 towns, and 177 villages, including, by the way, Nagoya, where the largest protests were in Tsunami Park. This all led to the arrest of about 25,000 individuals. Together with the 1914 protests over an increase to streetcar fares that also began in Tsunami and ended with rioting, including setting those streetcars ablaze, it's truly one of the proudest moments in the history of modern Nagoya. For anyone who is interested, the Tokugawa Art Museum here in town has a marvelous illustrated scroll of the riots in Nagoya. In any case, the power of political protest led to the first party administration in Japan, i.e. one not controlled by the Meiji oligarchs, the men who had instigated the uh, restoration, quote-unquote. Army olig oligarch Yamagata Aritomo was first among equals in this tiny clique of elder statesmen who made key political decisions in the emperor's name such as naming the prime minister. Normally unflappable, Yamagata was terribly upset by the rice riots in particular. And normally anti-party, he was shaken enough to name career party politician Harake, also known as Hara Takashi, uh, to be the prime minister. Hara was a Christian who was fluent in French and known for his relentless pork barreling. He formed a cabinet composed almost entirely of party members. The exceptions were the army, navy, and foreign ministers. This was the first stable, effective party government in Japanese history. It appeared that this would cement the rise of the parties and the normalization of party-led government. But the practice of selecting party leaders to form cabinets was still not firmly established. And also, as I said, the army, navy, and foreign ministers were still not party men. The rice riots were also a sign of the troubles to come in the 1920s for Japan. The economy experienced a great boom during and because of World War I, followed by a prolonged post-war bust. The war had cut off European traders from their Asian customers. This gave a huge boost to the newly industrializing economy of Japan. Industrial output surged from 1.4 to 6.8 billion yen per year. Cotton cloth exports, for example, jumped 185%. This also caused massive inflation in Japan. Wholesale prices went up 150%, and the 175% uptick in rice prices led to the archipelago white rice riots. Then, in 1920, the stock market crashed. This was accompanied by collapsing prices of commodities, such as rice, raw silk, and cotton yarn. Several trading companies, banks, and manufacturing businesses went into bankruptcy. Japan's major export commodity, silk, was especially hard hit. Overall, the production value of key industries fell 40% in just a year. For the rest of the decade, the economy spluttered from crisis to crisis, at least on the surface. Internationally, the 1920s was the era of multilateralism that gave birth to the League of Nations and the Washington Treaty System of Free Trade and Disarmament. Japan was a global leader in this new world order, pursuing peaceful cooperation with the major Western powers. After World War I, the perils of empires and blocs were clear, so multilateral trade, commerce, and negotiated peace were the new mode of political hegemony and legitimacy. 
Japanese leaders participated in the Versailles Peace Conference that concluded World War I, for example, as representatives of the victors. And though territorial gains in China antagonized the public there, as evidenced by the 1919 May 4th movement that we're going to discuss in a lecture on China, Japan's participation in World War I on the side of the Allies laid the grounds to become a founding member of the League of Nations and a linchpin of the multilateral international order, uh, sometimes called the Wilsonian World Order, of the interwar years. Japanese diplomatic leaders in the 1920s adopted a foreign policy in line with the new climate of internationalism, in the belief that Japan's interests were best served through diplomacy and multilateral international agreements, rather than belligerency and unilateralism. A particularly good example of this is the 1921-1922 Washington Naval Conference. Agreements signed there limited naval armaments and affirmed Chinese territorial integrity. This reflected the great power's commitment to peaceful internationalism. Japan was made to return to China territories that uh, it had taken from the Germans in Shandong, and was also forced to, quote, accept a naval arms limitation treaty establishing a 553 1.75 1.75 ratio of capital ship tonnage for Britain the United States, Japan, France, and Italy. To compensate for the inferior ratio, British and the USA gave Japan the promise of no new fortifications in the Pacific. In other words, the Japanese had accepted having a smaller navy uh, in return for promises from Britain and the US that they would not build up their own navies, uh, that they would essentially keep the status quo in the Pacific. While it was both wise and probably necessary accommodation, arms reduction, especially lower naval tonnage, deeply troubled Japan's military leadership. Politicians saw in the unprecedented destruction of the Great War lessons about peace and multilateralism. Many in the military, however, came to sharply different conclusions. If World War I had overall taught politicians and the public the lessons of peace and cooperation, it had confirmed for the army and navy that they needed to be fully prepared for total war, with the massive numbers of soldiers and new weapons and materiel that the European war had seen, as well as an educated public that understood and supported the military. For the Japanese brass, the diplomats were fools, traitors even, whose actions endangered the nation. There was an overwhelming consensus in the military that forces needed to be modernized and expanded to bring them up to standards that had been developed by the combatants in Western Europe. The Siberian intervention, which followed, served to reinforce the military's disgust and disillusionment with both politicians and the public. When Japanese military adventurism was met with little enthusiasm back home, top brass and strategic thinkers in the army concluded that, quote, weakness on the home front and the people's failure to grasp the importance of Japan's imperial mission undercut the military's morale and eroded the nation's ability to pursue victory. Given this, their task was to cling to the traditions that defined them as the emperor's servants and to educate the people to recognize the paramount importance of the army's mission. In other words, to expand and defend imperial territory, resources, and prestige. When the wartime bubble burst and the stock market collapsed, things got pretty bad pretty quickly. Recession set in in 1920 and no real recovery occurred before the World Depression at the end of the decade affected Japan as well. In other words, the Great Depression. 
Nevertheless, city life flourished in spite of the continued low-grade crisis of the aggregate national economy and the increasing urban-rural divide. The interwar years were, quote, characterized by a thriving popular culture. Popular novels, magazines, newspapers, and the new media of radio and motion pictures disseminated culture into the countryside and the lower levels of the cultural and intellectual spectrum. The expansion of a new white-collar middle class pursuing a new lifestyle and culture, concerned with personal autonomy and enjoyment, and influenced by Western ideas and social practices introduced through the burgeoning mass media, was another factor and consequence of this new atmosphere. Somewhat paradoxically and prophetically, the massive potential for renewal, for cutting unwanted ties with the past, afforded by the massive 1923 earthquake that leveled and burned the Tokyo-Yokohama area, was a major force in stimulating the growth and vitality of urban culture and economy in interwar Japan. So let's talk about that earthquake. That's the Great Kanto earthquake, which struck on September 1st, 1923, and devastated the capital region. Fires blazed for two days, whipped by winds that gave birth to fire-nados. Yes, that's actually a word. The 7.9 magnitude quake and ensuing fires leveled much of the low city area and killed over 100,000 people. Altogether, perhaps three-fourths of all the residential buildings in the city, about 570,000 or so, were lost in the disaster. To keep order, martial law was imposed. While some semblance of order did largely prevail, it is worth noting that vigilante mobs lynched Koreans suspected, as a result of malicious and or terrified rumors, propagated no less by the police, uh, suspected of possessing bombs, poisoning wells, etc. The lethal mobs were armed with homemade weapons, such as bamboo spears, knives, whips, carpentry tools such as saws and hammers, broken glass, clubs and wood sticks, fishing hooks, and so on. But since these were the mixed group that included army reserves, some had well-maintained swords, guns, and bullets. More than 6,000 of the 20,000 or so Koreans living in the Tokyo-Yokohama area alone were murdered under a media blackout and with only show trials in the aftermath. Though, as Andrew Gordon wrote, for a time, economic activity in Japan's largest city came to a virtual standstill. Reconstruction offered opportunities, many, it should be said, not taken, for a kind of state-of-the-art cultural and economic rebirth in the Tokyo metro area. The post-quake era of urban efflorescence that resulted is symbolized in many accounts by the appearance of seemingly endless cafes and drinking establishments in the cities. They became the new centers of urban life for the middle classes. In the fashionable Ginza district of Tokyo, the number of cafes increased by 150% between 1922 and 1929. And as the modern was increasingly associated with American things, speed, movies, and jazz, as one historian remarked, the cafes and cinemas that depart and department stores of the cities increasingly formed the epicenter of a cosmopolitan consumer culture and the conservative backlash that came with that. Modern department stores catering to ordinary Japanese drew in crowds during the days, and these crowds dispersed to cafes and bars at night. These urbanites and their flashy modern lifestyles were also the object of rural anger, as the countryside remained largely poor, dark, and left behind, at least by comparison. As Carrie Smith wrote, the Ginza's bright lights brought little joy to farmers' hearts. 
This was also the era of both the birth of a large-scale organized women's, excuse me, this was also the era of the birth of a large-scale organized women's movement. Gender is a topic we'll go into more detail about in other classes, uh, but here I'd like to say that the women's movement in interwar Japan focused primarily on suffrage, uh, in other words, the right to vote, because the franchise had been granted to women by some of the other World War I allies, in part as a recognition of women's importance to national strength and defense. The issue of voting rights must be understood within the limited set of roles prescribed or ascribed to women in the society of the time, and these were all roles that did not include political participation. The media stars of the era were the fashionable modern girls and urban cafe waitresses. They were fixed upon by the public and the writing classes because they didn't conform to the prescriptive ideals of the good wife, wise mother, or Yosai Kimbo vision of the modern woman. Uh, and this was a vision that had been promoted as the sort of modern woman with Japanese characteristics as more or less official dogma since the 1870s. Yosai Kimbo engendered a new division of space and labor for modern Japan in which women were associated with home, family, and reproduction. Men were associated with the public sphere of work, government, and other productive labor. Illustrative of this is the fact that since 1890, women had been explicitly banned from participating in political parties or protests. Uh, this ban was lifted in 1922, but the one on party participation remained in place. According to Susan Holloway, the Yosai Kembo ideology reflects the realization by Japanese government officials in charge of facilitating Japan's swift transition to modernity that women could contribute to the new nation by taking a more active role in child rearing as well as engaging in patriotic activities and by contributing to the family's income as a professionalized household manager, if you will. The reality for most women was less likely to be one lived as a modern girl than one as, say, a badly exploited textile worker, an urban housewife or shopkeeper's wife, or a wife managing a household in the farming and fishing villages that still dominated Japan's economy despite decades of rapid modernization urbanization, etc. In other words, the prescriptive roles for married women, and it was essentially assumed that all women could, should, and would marry, centered on the subordinate position of wife and the reproductive position of mother. Younger, unmarried women especially were often subjected to horrendous working conditions in the mills and villagers of industrializing Japan or other similar job sites supporting economic growth. Nevertheless, on the one hand, as mentioned, women were courted by the home ministry in particular for participation in patriotic associations, such as the Patriotic Women's Association, founded in 1901. Like other similar associations, the Patriotic Women's Association was ostensibly apolitical and therefore appropriate for women. It was formed to comfort uh, wounded and deceased soldiers of foreign wars and their families. With government support, the group's membership reached a half a million during the Russo-Japanese War, and the Patriotic Women's Association remained an important way for the government to channel the energies of women into support for the state. A whole mess of such organizations continued this task during wartime, and many women enthusiastically supported the war in diverse ways. 
the Orwellian Peace Preservation Law, which was passed in 1925 as a kind of compromise with ultra-conservatives who opposed expanding the franchise, even for men. Um, men 25 and up were made eligible to vote that year by another law. Uh, the Peace Preservation Law made criticism of the emperor a capital offense and criticism of the system of private property punishable by up to 10 years in jail. One of its key provisions was that conspiracy, even alleged conspiracy, could be penalized. Article 1 concludes, quote, an offense not actually carried out shall also be subject to punishment. This law was used as the justification for brutal crackdowns on labor and progressive movements, and augured a darkly authoritarian turn in the coming decade. So when the Great Depression hit after the New York Stock Exchange crash of 1929, the army and navy were angry with the multilateralist pacifism of the politicians. The farmers hated the bourgeoisie. Conservatives feared bourgeois capitalism and consumerism, and the greedy nouveau riche and captains of business were almost as unpopular as the politicians. And women wanted the vote, while the police wanted to round up those suspected of quote-unquote dangerous thought. To make things worse, the economy had really been un on unsure, panicky footing for a decade or so. And this increased tension and anxiety throughout society, and thereby exacerbated existing or perceived problems. In other words, Japan was a powder keg. Despite this, Japan was more or less at the zenith of its international prestige when the Depression hit. It was a charter member of the League of Nations, a signatory to all the key international treaties of the Wilsonian order, and the only successful non-white, non-Western modernizer in world history. The Depression and the Manchurian incident, which we'll talk about next, changed this. The economic impact of the Depression was neither as severe or long-lasting in Japan as it was in some of the other developed economies. But that was not the general perception in Japan, in part because of the other troubles that we've just talked about, and in part because of several very, very severe famines in the Northeast, uh, in the Tohoku region, in the early 1930s. Also, in part because of the sensationalism of the press. In any case, it is important to point out that industrial output, GDP, exports, uh, those sort of aggregate economic uh, indicators recovered and actually expanded by the mid-1930s. The first signs of economic recovery came after the Manchurian incident of 1931. Um, and that's important because this timing meant that the appearance of the first signs that Japan was recovering from the depression coincided with the beginning of expansionistic activities on the continent. And thus, the impression was created that imperialism was paying off. Uh, so this was potentially mistaking uh, correlation for causation. So let's talk about the Manchurian incident. Sometimes called the Mukden incident, the Manchurian incident was the product of meticulous planning and preparation. It was carried out in a context of complex personal and group affiliations. In the late 1920s, a new and frequently lethal form of factionalism developed through associations formed by military academy classmates. These horizontal groupings, in other words, groupings of men from the same class, produced a generation of young men impatient with the caution of their superiors and committed to simple solutions based on the assumption that direct action to eliminate symbols of the old order would bring to power men more likely to be willing to take risks through decisive policies. 
a series of unsuccessful coups in the mid-1920s were indicative of growing dissent and disunity within the military itself. They were led by young officers, mostly from the countryside. These terrorists advocated a Taisho Restoration, along the lines of the Meiji Restoration. Unlike the Meiji revolutionaries, however, they had no long-term program for rebuilding the nation. The entirety of their vision was wresting away power from the capitalists and party government hacks, and returning it to the emperor. As one explained to the court at his trial, quote, we thought about destruction first. We never considered taking on the duty of reconstruction. Now, you may or may not see parallels with contemporary politics in certain global superpowers, but for the soldiers who terrorized 1920s Japan, they needed no plan, except to return power, full control, to the emperor. And this makes a certain logical internal sense, right, if you think about it. Because if the empire, if the emperor was, as it, as it actually was to these radicals, the sacrosanct supreme commander, any plan after hanging back, handing back the reins would be sacrilege. In other words, the whole point was that the emperor should be the supreme commander. In any case, overseas in Manchuria, where Japan's Kwantung army protected the country's economic interests, these interpersonal networks had even freer reign, far as they were from central command and the oversight of both generals and politicians. Despite all the talk of direct command of the emperor, authority and responsibility were desperately, tragically fragmented. No one was really in charge. By giving supreme command to the emperor, the constitution denied it to anyone else, and the emperor had simultaneously been removed from politics and command to sit behind a curtain and receive the occasional report. Radical young officers in the Kwantung army, the infamous and frankly fascinating Ishiwara Kanji first among them, preached to their brethren an apocalyptic vision of ever greater wars that would culminate in a final titanic struggle between Japan, hegemon of Asia, and the United States, leader of the Western world. In the meantime, the need was for the conquest of Manchuria in order to develop it as a resource base in preparation for that war and probably conflict first with the Soviet Union. These soldiers, like their predecessors in the 1920s, were deeply troubled by the situation at home and in the world. They saw capitalists and the bourgeoisie growing rich while their own villages starved, and they saw politicians betraying the nation and its sacred military with disarmament. And like their predecessors, they took matters into their own hands, pushing an aggressive imperialist agenda that would lead Japan into intractable wars on multiple fronts. In September 1931, they blamed quote-unquote Chinese terrorists for a bombing on the southern Manchurian railroad tracks, which they were charged with defending. The damage was so severe that the next train was on time. Still, in the all-permitting name of anti-terrorism and national security, within months the Japanese army had expanded control all over Manchuria taking even Harbin by February of 1932, and declaring the establishment of a nominally independent puppet regime, Manchukuo, or Manchukuo, in March. The last of the Manchu emperors was installed as its figurehead. Uh, this is a saga beautifully detailed in director Bernardo Bertolucci's 1988 nine-Oscar-winning film, The Last Emperor. The brass and the politicians in Tokyo didn't know how to rein in their soldiers. But the international community did step in late that year. The Lytton Commission of the League of Nations named Japan the aggressor, 
not the Chinese terrorists, as Japan claimed. And Lytton criticized the Japanese takeover of Manchuria as excessive, arguing that Manchuria was an, uh, Manchukuo was an illegitimate state, and recommending that Manchuria be made an autonomous district under Chinese sovereignty. This verdict, while it was damaging to Japan's case, was by no means completely hostile to it. But when the League adopted the Commission report, Japan's representative, uh, Matsuoka Yosuke, portrayed his country as crucified by world opinion and spectacularly walked out of the League forever, shocking the world community. Japanese internationalism, and indeed the entire Washington Conference order that had structured East Asia for a decade, were at an end at least at the official level. Something that's often forgotten is that outside of these formal state-level relations, as Jessamine Abel has shown, multilateralism and internationalism remained important currents connecting Japan to the world, even as diplomatic isolation deepened and the war escalated. In any case, as a state, Japan had committed to an independent course. Matters were no longer negotiable. In this sense, the Manchurian incident was the end of interwar J Japanese internationalism and the beginning of what is known in Japan as the 15 Years' War. This occurred because key figures, the bombastic uh, foreign minister Matsuoka Yosuke among them, uh, as well as the quantum army officers, had changed their view of the world's socio-political and economic situation. Japanese leaders began to feel surrounded pressed in on all sides by hostile Western powers. The mantra of A, B, C, D encirclement, in other words, American, British, Chinese, Dutch encirclement, threatened, threatening Japanese markets and interests in Asia became a constant refrain in policy circles and public uh, publications alike. A new sense of national danger informed political and military decision-making as these foreign powers appeared to close in around Japan. China seemed one of the few foreign markets still available, as well as a key source of critical resources such as iron, coal, and farmland. To secure it, the Japanese would go to war. To this extent, Japan's expansion into Manchuria was motivated in large part by perhaps misguided concerns about economic security. Faced with the possibility of isolation, Japan pursued po the policies of autarky, in other words of sort of independence and autonomy. Those policies of self-sufficiency increased Japan's isolation in a self-fulfilling prophecy. But economics did not mean solely securing resources and securing markets. It also meant securing outlets for excess Japanese population. What this meant in practice was some place to transform the troublesome rural poor into happily occupied suppliers of goods for the Japanese metropole. One of the Japanese soldiers who staged failed coups in the 1930s put this eloquent, uh, elegantly. He justified expansionism by arguing, quote, there are only three ways left to Japan to escape from the pressures of its surplus population, emigration, greater access to world markets, and expansion of territory. The first door, emigration, has been barred to us by the anti-Japanese immigration policies of other countries. The second door, to world markets is being pushed shut by tariff barriers and the abrogation of commercial treaties. What should Japan do when two of the three doors have been closed against her? It is quite natural that Japan should rush through the last remaining door. 
Other failed coup participants employed similarly high-minded rhetoric to emphasize that expansion was a matter of patriotic concern for Japan, and especially for the plight of the rural hometowns of many Japanese soldiers. One wrote, quote, We did not take up the sword for the sake of increasing military expenditure, nor did we rise up to strengthen the position of the army. We did so for the sake of the peasantry, for the common people, and to save and defend the nation. We have been asking the government to pay the full cost of compulsory education. This will aid local governments greatly, and if the government pays for lunch and textbooks, the children and their parents will be helped immensely. Another made the case for empire more explicitly a matter of defending the Japanese towns and villages, and their soldiers' sons, from rapacious crony capitalism. In his trial, uh, his treason trial, he testified, quote, The impoverishment of the farming villages is a cause of grave concern to all thoughtful people. The same is true of the fishing villages and the small merchants and industrialists. It is extremely dangerous that rural soldiers should be worried about their starving families when they are at the front risking their lives. In utter disregard of poverty-stricken farmers, the enormously rich zaibatsu pursue their private profit. Meanwhile, the young children of the impoverished farmers of the northeastern provinces attend school without having had breakfast, while their families subsist on rotten potatoes. I thought that to let a day go by without doing anything was to endanger the army for one day longer. Whatever the reasons, whatever the justifications, after the Manchurian incident, Japan increasingly became an international pariah. In the eyes of the world, Japan was transformed almost overnight from one of the pillars of the multinational, international, multilateral international order uh, of the interwar period into an aggressive, warmongering troublemaker. The eventual transformation of Japanese society, at least on the surface, into one of fanatical support for militarism and imperialism has led many to see the progressive, cosmopolitan, consumer-driven culture of the interwar cities as inauthentic, shallow, dangerously depoliticized, etc. As I pointed out early on in this lecture, however, this sees the interwar period not on its own terms, but on those of the world that came after it. And we have to ask ourselves whether that is really the best way to judge an era. Next time, we're going to enter in earnest into the so-called Dark Valley of the War Years, which colors our vision of the interwar period. There, we're going to see Japan reduced to ashes before we begin to follow the country's meteoric recovery. Less than two decades after the A-bombs fall on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Shinkansen is ferrying passengers in the Western world's third largest economy to the Olympics in its capital, Tokyo. And that's where we're going to get to next time.